And one of the main responsibilities that I have here at Sovereign Grace is um, participating in most of the counseling that happens at the church and um, overseeing um, all, of, all of the counseling that happens in the church, whether that be one-on-one individual counseling, um, marriage counseling, premarital counseling. And so it's, it's a great privilege for me to be here uh, with you all this evening. And uh, clearly there's a need for what we're talking about. There's a demand for it because you're all here. And so I just, I just rejoice at your eagerness um, to see how the gospel impacts singleness, um, marriage, and parenting. So I'm just very, very thankful. I come this evening with a very full heart at what the Lord is, is doing here in our church. Um, if this is the first time that you've been here with us for our Sunday evening um, series, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, just to give you a heads up as to the format for this evening, we're going to break our session up into two sections. Um, the first section will be uh, me direct teaching, and I'm not going to give you time on that just in case I go short or over. Um, if you've been at our church for any length of time, you know that the tendency of us is to go over, um, not under time. Uh, and then the second uh, section of the session tonight will be a question and answer time. And uh, the last two sessions, we've just done it where you texted in your question, and we're going to put the phone number up here that you can text that to. That option's still going to be there. The other option will be we actually have these microphones down here that they faced them towards the crowd, so you'll have to look at everybody while you're saying your question. Um, but you're f- feel free to do that as well. You can text those questions to us at any time during tonight. It doesn't come to my phone, so it's not going to distract me. Um, you'll, they'll go right to Chad, and he'll come up here, and we'll answer those questions together. So again, glad that you're here. Let's, let's start this evening off with some prayer, and then we'll jump into what we're going to talk about tonight. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the privilege that we have to come and study your word and uh, to know you better and to be known better by you. Lord, we pray that um, as we think about your gospel and think about how it impacts marriage and how it impacts singleness and in the future how it impacts parenting, we pray that, uh, that you would enlarge our hearts to love you more and to love each other more, and that we would see how freeing living in a gospel relationship with you is, that we would be encouraged, that we would be challenged, and that your spirit would accompany the preaching of the word this evening, that it would not just be merely human words spoken, but that your spirit would accompany your word and transform our hearts and our lives. We come before you with eagerness for you to do this, and awareness that we are dependent upon you to do this in us because we do not have the strength in and of ourselves. So we look to you now and thank you in advance for how you are going to answer these prayers. We ask it in the name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if you've been with us so far in our, in our Sunday evening series, you know that this is the third session that we're entering into. And in the first two sessions, Chad talked about the goal of gospel-centered marriage and parenting. And really, he said that the goal there is really the goal of all of life, which is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So whatever we're talking about, it doesn't matter if we're talking about parenting or any arena of the Christian life, the goal is always to glorify God. And in the second session, he talked about how we do that. How do we glorify God? Obviously, 
because of our sinful flesh, uh, we're not capable in and of ourselves of glorifying God the way that we've been called to. And so the good news is that Jesus has done that in our place. He came and lived a life that perfectly glorified the Father. He died an atoning death on the cross for the ways that we failed to glorify God. And so now that we've entered into a relationship with him, been united with him by grace through faith, we get to live all of this life to the praise of his glorious grace in community with each other, as we um, search the scriptures and pray to the Father, and as the Spirit transforms our hearts, um, we glorify the Lord together. And that really laid the foundation for everything else that we're going to talk about um, in, in this series. Everything that we talk about is going to come back to how we glorify God and the means that God has given us to glorify Him. And this evening is going to be an introduction specifically um, to the next four sessions, which are dealing specifically with how the gospel transforms our understanding of marriage. And we're going to deal with the nitty-gritty. I know we've said this for three weeks now, um, but we really are going to. But I I don't want to launch out into it until we really have an understanding of what is and what is not a gospel-centered marriage. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And everything that we talk about in the next four weeks is going to come back to this. Um, Everything As we're dealing with specific issues in the context of Christian marriage and a gospel-centered marriage, everything is going to flow out of what we talk about Um, tonight. So I hope you see that all these are are building blocks that are helping us understand um, the the framework through which we need to think about all that God um, is doing for us. So tonight the question I want to answer is, what is and is not a gospel-centered marriage? And before we really get to the gospel-centered part, we need to answer the question, what is a marriage? There's a lot of confusion today about what a marriage is, and I don't want to assume that we're necessarily all on the same page about that, but God has made it abundantly clear to us in his word um, what a marriage is. So I want to start at a very basic, fundamental level and look through Scripture and answer that question. So in order to do that, we have to go all the way back to the very beginning of the story, all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, Um, So if you have your Bibles, and we will be looking at at various scriptures this evening, so if you don't have one, we've got some on the back table if you want to pick one up. But turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. And up to this point in the creation account, God has created all things, and there's this pattern. God creates something, and then he acknowledges Um, the goodness of his creation. God created it and then saw and declared that it was good. Um, And God has put all things um, under man's dominion. God has taken man, his creation, and uh, put him, as it were, as a steward over all that he's created. Um, He is um, submissive to God. He's not the ultimate sovereign, but man is a little sovereign over all of God's creation. But the the pattern sort of changes here. Rather than God saying it's good that man should be alone, he says it's not good that man should be alone. For the first time in the creation account, God sees something that is not good. And so the Lord says, I have a remedy for this. I will make him, that is man, a helper fit for him. So out of the ground... The Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. 
And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So what we see here is an application of the fact that God created man and gave him this calling to exercise dominion over all creation. Part of that was naming each one of the animals. And whatever name Adam gave them, that was, in fact, their name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam... There was not found a helper fit for him. So the situation here is God is having all of the animals in pairs, male and female, parade before Adam, and he's naming each one of them. And and Adam's noticing something rather interesting. Each male animal has a female counterpart that God created so that they could glorify God. And what Adam is noticing here is, hey, none of these are fit to be my helper. And so God says, all right, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to put you to sleep. I'm going to pull out one of your ribs. And while you're asleep, I'm going I'm to close its place up and I'm going I'm to create a woman. So God is performing the first surgery here that we have recorded in, in history. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So not only is God creating the first woman, he's also presiding over and officiating the first marriage. God is, is you've been to a wedding before, who walks the bride down the aisle? The father does, and presents her um, to the bridegroom. And that's the picture here of what God is doing. God is taking Eve to Adam and saying, look um, who I've created for you. And Adam is so excited that he bursts out into song And says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And what we see in this passage is very clearly that God is the one who came up with the idea of marriage. Marriage is not a man-made institution. It is an institution that God created. And since it's God's idea and God's creation, he alone has authority um, to define what is a marriage and what is a marriage, isn't a marriage. What is a good marriage and what is a bad marriage. We don't have the authority to do that. No one does but God alone. And he's shown us here in Scripture what that is. And that's important for us. That's not just important for us culturally, as there's so much confusion about what a marriage actually is. It's also important for us as Christians. Because we are so often, I know for myself anyway, approach um, marriage and we want to define it and make it something other than it is. We want to make it uh, something that that satisfies us and make it all about self-fulfillment rather than a means by which we can glorify God. So it's, important, it's extremely important for us to know that marriage is God's idea, and he is the one who has authority over it. The next thing that Scripture clearly teaches us is that marriage is a covenant. Marriage is a covenant. And the reason that we know that marriage is a covenant is because in Malachi chapter 2.14, God says, Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. There's the key word. So marriage is a covenant. Okay, well that's great. What is a covenant? A covenant, according to scripture, 
is a solemn agreement negotiated or unilaterally imposed that binds parties to each other in a permanent defined relationship with specific promises, claims, and obligations on both sides. And that's very unique to the way that we often as Christians and certainly how the culture thinks about marriage. The culture doesn't think about marriage as a covenant or or a promise or a contract or anything like that. I don't know if you guys pay attention to to some of your your non-Christian friends and if you get invited to their weddings, but the things that they do and how they approach it and make it all just about their individual love can can borderline on, on the bizarre. But it makes sense because... If we get to define what marriage is and it's just all about our love, then we're going to completely miss the boat. Because the way that we often approach marriage is the way we approach all of life. We've been trained to approach life as consumers. Individualistic, selfish, sinful, self-centered consumers. And so that's the way we approach marriage. We don't approach it as a covenant that's binding on us. We don't approach it as a promise. We approach it as um, having the potential to satisfy me, to help me self-actualize and become the person that I want to be and live the life that I want to live. So really, I'm just, I'm just using you. I'm a consumer, you're a vendor, and I think you, can, you being included in my life can make me happy. And that's, that's the way we approach marriage. You see the way that it affects uh, dating. You singles out there. I was a part of the dating scene not so long ago, and I'm just as guilty as any of the singles in here. But the way that we approach dating because of this consumer mentality is we're constantly critiquing the other person. We're constantly thinking, well, how much fun am I having for them, with, with them? Um, how compatible are we? Are we really that compatible? Um, how will this weakness in them or this thing that they struggle with impact me down the road? And there's nothing wrong with asking those questions, but we're often asking them in such a self-centered, self-referential way, thinking about how is this going to affect my happiness down the road? And I, I, I'm going to admit it, I think I was the king of this when I was in the dating scene. You can ask Chad. I, I, there you go. I got an amen. That was my goal for tonight is to get one Amen. Uh, I, would, I would meet someone, and, and I'd maybe not even meet them. They, I, they just came around the context of my ministry, and I would begin to observe them. It's not as creepy as it sounds, but maybe it is. Um, and I, I would immediately start to play the compatibility game. What can I know about them? You know, what can I tell about this? Do they have any overtly annoying habits, smacking their gum or you know, saying like more times than they say anything, any other word in a sentence. And I was just so hypercritical, and I know it drove Chad crazy. Praise God he was super patient with me. Um, but I, that's the way I constantly thought about marriage. And I wasn't thinking, of course I was doing it all under the guise of being wise. You know, that's the Christian way that we talk about being selfish. Um, but really I was thinking about how is this going to impact, or at least that's what I do. How is this going to impact me? How is, the, is this going to mean that, I, that I'm going to have an easy marriage or a difficult marriage? And, and so that's the way I was constantly thinking about it. And I think single folks in here, if you're on the dating scene and you're honest with yourself, you, you often approach it the same way, don't you? But now that I'm married, I'm not excluded from this either. All of that way of thinking, that consumeristic, self-centered way of thinking, I've now carried into my marriage. 
I thought it would just stay behind, but it, it, it joined us in holy matrimony. And so now I'm constantly thinking about, like if I'm serving my wife, I, I, I hate this about myself, but it's true. In my flesh, I'm thinking, I think I've done more to serve her today than she's done to serve me. What in the world? I'm thinking that as I'm scrubbing the dishes, and I'm going, what? where's that coming from? That's the flesh trying to, trying to voice his opinion in there. And one specific example that may seem kind of silly, um, but I, as we sleep in our bed, um, I, I've always obviously slept alone, and I don't like anything or anybody touching me. I, I'm a person that if somebody's touching me, I get really hot really fast, temperature-wise. My, my, my temperature rises. You know, as I was writing that out this, today, I thought I should probably change that word. But um, anyway... <laughs> Uh, my temperature rises really quickly, and I almost feel like I'm starting to sweat in that one spot. And so what will happen is, is I'll slowly migrate to this end of the bed, and my wife will slowly follow me. And, and this is just my self-centered. I'm not even consciously thinking about this as I'm sleeping. But that's just how selfish I am. That's how deep this is. And we can't just pin it on being consumeristic. That's just a word that I'm using because of the cultural context we find ourselves. Really, it's just our selfish hearts. Our selfish, self-centered hearts approach it this way. So thinking about marriage as a covenant relationship is really a, a very foreign way of thinking about marriage for us. So from everything that we've looked at so far in Scripture, Malachi 2 and, and Genesis 2, we can put together a, a definition of marriage, and th- this is it. Biblically, marriage is defined as a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman established by and entered into before God. So it's lifelong, monogamous, and heterosexual, just so we're clear on that. The next thing that we, we see clearly from Scripture is that God's relationship with His people is the true marriage. God's relationship with His people is the true marriage, and our marriages are just a picture of that ultimate reality. Does that make sense? Our marriages aren't the ultimate reality, and God decides, oh, let's go ahead and use that. No, 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 no. God's relationship with His covenant people is the ultimate reality, and our marriages are just a picture of that. Now, the problem with that (laughs) is that ever since the fall, we've had a broken marriage relationship with the Lord. That covenant relationship we have with him was broken. He entered into an intimate covenant relationship with us when he created us, and yet we continually break that covenant and run from him. You see this from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. Um, You can see how pivotal these beginning chapters of Genesis are to our understanding and Christian worldview. Um, In Genesis chapter 3, right after Adam and Eve eat the fruit and break the covenant, what does God do? What does he do? Look Look at verse 22 with me. Genesis 3, 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way 
to the tree of life. Now this is one of the most devastating passages in all of scripture because this is this being driven out of the garden of Eden is a picture of the spiritual reality that our relationship with the Lord was broken. This morning, if you were here, Pastor Chad talked about how God created us to live as his covenant people in his, in his covenant place, under his covenant um, blessing and rule. And yet, what we see here is, is we lost that in the fall. They're kicked out of God's place. And they're no longer um, under God's blessing and rule. And they're no longer God's people. They have this broken marriage covenant relationship with God. And we see that running all throughout the pages of Scripture. This Not only that that's the state of the relationship, but there's continual ongoing unfaithfulness to the covenant. And the, in the Old Testament, the prophets in particular um, talk about and use marriage language to talk about God's relationship to the Israelites and how unfaithful they have been um, to him. The first place that we can see this in the prophets is Isaiah chapter 54, verses 5 through 8. In that passage, God says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says the Lord your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord God, your Redeemer. So here we see the Lord using overt uh, marital language to describe his covenant relationship with Israel and how he will respond to their unfaithfulness. And there are so many places in the Old Testament that use language like this, and I'm not going to be able to talk about all of them, but let me just point you uh, to another, another huge one. Um, in Ezekiel chapter 16, which I'm not going to read the whole chapter to you for your sake, it's a very long chapter, but you can see that the, the title there um, is the Lord's um, Unfaithful Bride. And all throughout this chapter, um, God uses this marriage language to describe his relationship with his people. Let me, let me just read a few verses for you here. Um, look at verses uh, 18 through 16 with me of uh, Ezekiel 16. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. It's this picture of God redeeming um, this, this woman that's abandoned and by the side of the road. And the Lord goes on to say, I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect 
through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them you played the whore. The like has never been nor ever shall be. So again, the Lord using this vivid uh, marital language that, that almost makes us uncomfortable in describing how Israel has been unfaithful to him, and yet he's pursued her and loved her and taken care of her, and yet she continues in her unfaithfulness, turning away from her. And this has been the story ever since the fall. And if you're interested, a few other places you can look on your own time. Jeremiah chapters 2 through 4 uses a lot of this language. And also Hosea chapters um, 1 through 3 as well. But this isn't any different when we jump to the New Testament. We find a lot of the, the same marital language in the New Testament as well. For example, in 2 Corinthians 11 verses 1 through 3, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to, the, to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So the way Paul saw himself in relation with the Corinthians was as the one who betrothed them to Christ. But his fear was that the, the serpent, the, the evil one who still prowls around like a roaring lion was going to deceive them and distract them from pure and sincere devotion to Christ, their bridegroom, um, of whom they, they are the bride. And so Paul was jealous for that. He says, I'm jealous for you, which is to be a picture of, of Christ's jealousy for you. I'm his spokesperson, so I'm communicating to you how he feels about this. And so again, we see again and again and again throughout the storyline of Scripture, God uses, um, God sees his relationship rather with his people as a marriage in which God is the husband and we are the unfaithful wife. We as his people are the unfaithful wife. And we're constantly seeking other lovers and we're constantly breaking the covenant with our husband even though he pursues us and cares for us and loves us. It's not a very flattering picture of us, is it, at all? But it's true. That's who we are. The next thing that Scripture shows us about marriage is that because of our unfaithfulness in our marriage to the Lord, which we just talked about, as a result of that, we're unfaithful in our marriages to our spouses. In other words, because we do not rest in the covenant love that God has for us and has shown us, we are unable to give love, covenant love to our spouses because marriage wasn't meant to be entered into outside of the context of a loving relationship with God. And you don't have to look very far to see evidence that this is true. All you have to do is look at your own marriage. Look at your own marriage relationship with your spouse. It's not perfect, is it? You don't hold up your end of the deal. None of us in this room is perfectly faithful to their marriage covenant, myself included. And let's take all the major sins um, off the counter. Let's just talk about um, loving your spouse selflessly. Does any of us do that perfectly? No. That's a breach 
of the covenant relationship of marriage that we've entered into with our spouses. So every single one of us stands guilty of this in relationship to God and relation to our spouses. And what's particularly sad to me is that most people know this. They're aware of it. They've experienced it. They see it. And so they just give up on marriage. You see this outside of the church, and sadly you see it inside the church as well. Uh, Just one example, not that I want to harp on this, but would be the most recent uh, statistics on divorce. Typically, what I've heard when I'm watching television or a movie or a TV show is typically people say it's about 50%, right? Is that, is that what you guys have heard? It's about 50%, the divorce rate. Um, from the research that I've done, it's anywhere from about 40 uh, to 50%. And that's just for uh, first-time marriages. For second-time marriages, it's about 60%. And for third marriages, the numbers get even worse. It's about 70%. And what's most sad, all of that is saddening to me. It breaks my heart. The, the devastation that we can see all around us from divorce in the lives of children, in the lives of those spouses that, that are, that are um, outside of those marriages, it's just devastating. But what saddens me even more is that the, the statistics are the same inside the church as they are outside the church. There's not much of a distinction. At one time, I don't know if it's still the case, but the, the, uh, the divorce rate amongst evangelicals was even higher. And that just saddens me. And unfortunately, my generation, uh, their response to all of this, as they, they survey the devastation that divorce has caused, is let's not even mess with marriage. Let's not even go there. Clearly, it's not, it's not working. It's not worth the pain. It's not worth the effort. So instead, let's just cohabitate. Let's do that. Let's just cohabitate and then once we, what does this sound like? Doesn't this sound like a consumer mentality? It's not approaching marriage as a covenant. It's you're a vendor. Let's see how long this works out. When we get sick of each other, we'll break up and then we won't have to ever say that we've been divorced. That's, that's the prevailing trend right now is just bailing on marriage altogether. I actually, and, and the saddest thing to me is the witness that this gives uh, to the world of the church. I actually went on a website um, and it, it said 50 reasons for, why, for proof that God doesn't exist. And number 39 was the divorce rate among Christians is just as high as it is among non-Christians. Now, I don't think that that's an airtight argument for why God doesn't exist, obviously. Um, but it just sad, sad, saddens me that that's our testimony amongst the unbelieving world um, when it comes to marriage. Now, I don't want you to think that there aren't legitimate grounds for divorce, Obviously, there are. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 19, let's actually turn there uh, real quick. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is talking about divorce. you got to love the disciples. They give a, a classic response to Jesus' teaching on divorce in verse 10. But look at Matthew chapter 19, verse 1 with me. Now, when Jesus finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, because that's the way things were at the time. Any cause, you can, you can divorce your wife. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, 
Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And the disciples in classic fashion respond, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better to not marry. And they're thinking, man, if I can't divorce her for whatever reason, only if she's sexually promiscuous, then I'm, I'm not even, why should we even get married? And Jesus' response obviously is, hey, if you're called to celibacy, then great. But the reality is, single folks out there, a very small number of you are called to that. And uh, I, it was clear to me that I was not a part of that celibate, uh, called a celibacy group, so I got married. And most of us in this room are in that category. And so uh, our approach to marriage needs to be what Jesus has here. So he says, except for sexual immorality. So there is legitimate grounds for divorce in that case. Now, that doesn't mean that if you come to me and say, hey, my spouse committed adultery, I'm not going to say divorce them. That's not going to be my first um, a recall, what we're going to tell you here at the church is that divorce is plan Z. We're going we're gonna to do everything we can to restore this marriage. And by God's grace, here at Sovereign Grace, we've seen that happen time and time again. We've seen marriages re- restored and people come to love each other um, in ways that they never had before and, and the gospel um, restore marriages in that way. So that's one legitimate ground for divorce is in the case of, of uh, sexual immorality, adultery. Another one is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 16. That's another exception. And the case there, because I'm, I'm, I don't want to bleed over too much into the question and answer time, the, the issue there is you've got an unbelieving spouse and a believing spouse, and the unbelieving spouse abandons the believing spouse. And Paul says they're not bound to stay married to the unbelieving spouse. The believer isn't. If they've abandoned them and there's no possibility of reconciliation, then they're not bound to that. They can get remarried. That's my understanding of 1 Corinthians 7 anyway. Um, And and so I think there are some other um, exceptions that could be included there in abandonment. You get into issues of of consistent physical abuse. Um, That's not a healthy um, situation. But Jesus is abundantly clear. The New Testament is abundantly clear. Sexual immorality and abandonment on the part of an unbeliever are legitimate grounds for divorce. But where, where does all of this leave us? Well, well, from Scripture, we've seen that marriage is a lifelong, monogamous, heterosexual, covenant relationship. But we've also seen that because we are unfaithful to our marriage covenant with the Lord, we find ourselves incapable of keeping the covenant of marriage with our spouses. That's the reality. So not only do we have all of these broken human relationships, we also have the ultimate problem of a broken divine relationship in marriage. So what's the hope? What hope do we have in all of this? Because everything's a mess, isn't it? It started at the fall and it's just progressed until this day. And the only hope that we have is Jesus, is the gospel, is what he's done. That's our hope. Look at Ephesians chapter 5 verses 25 through 33 with me. Ephesians 5, 23 through 33. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her 
that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now what Ephesians 5 is telling us here is that Jesus is the perfect spouse that we all fail to be, both in relation to God and in relation to our spouses. He's done that perfectly in our place. If we go back to Genesis chapter 3, you remember that when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden and they they eat the fruit and they, they sin against the Lord, what's one of the first things they try to do? They try to hide their nakedness and their shame. They take uh, fig leaves and try to cover it, and it's not sufficient, and the Lord knows that. So what does he do? He sacrifices an animal. He, he sheds the first drop of blood that had ever been shed in, in history, and he, he takes the skins and he clothes Adam and Eve with them. And that's pointing us forward to when Jesus will come, and Jesus' blood will be spilt to pay the penalty for our covenant unfaithfulness to the Lord in our marriage with him. And so that penalty will be paid by Jesus. And his righteousness, his perfect track record of walking faithfully in covenant with the Lord is now given to us. It's credited to us. That's how God sees us as a perfect spouse in this relationship because we're united with Jesus. Jesus is the perfectly faithful spouse in the face of our continual unfaithfulness. He draws near to us and he unites us to himself through the Holy Spirit, taking all of our liabilities upon himself and giving us all of his divine um, assets. All that he earned, he's now given to us. And he restores the broken marriage that we had with God. Jesus is now our bridegroom and we as the church collectively are his bride. And he promises that he will never leave us He will never forsake us, and he will never divorce us. You might be sitting there thinking to yourself, well, I haven't experienced that in this life. I haven't experienced this intimacy and closeness with God that you're talking about. Why is that? Because the reality is the marriage hasn't been consummated yet. It's real. It's, it's been, um, it's, it's started, but it hasn't been consummated yet. Our marriage to Jesus will be fully and finally consummated when he comes again and gathers us to himself, gathers us collectively as the bride of Christ. But right now, he's gone to his Father's right hand, and he's preparing a place for us, and we yearn for him to come back. That's why we pray together, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We want to be reunited with you. We want to realize and see the realities of this marriage that we now experience spiritually and mystically. And the beautiful thing is, in Revelation 21, we see the end of our story. We see the end of of how we will, in fact, be reunited with Jesus. 
And in, in verses 1 through 5 of Revelation 21, we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's us. And Jesus is the husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, that is Jesus, says, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. See, that's the end of the story for those of us who are united with Jesus. One day, our marriage with, with Jesus will be consummated when he comes back for us. And then the reality that our temporary marriages are to point to will be fully and finally realized and the pictures will be done away with. And we will experience the ultimate reality that is our marriage with Christ. And because this is true of us though now, this changes everything for us. Since we've been shown the faithful covenant love of Jesus, because we've received that love, we are now free to give faithful covenant love to our spouses. We have the freedom and the ability and the power through the Holy Spirit to do that. We are now free to let our marriages tell the truth about Jesus' relationship to the church rather than lies. And singles out there, this changes everything for, the, for how you approach marriage as well. How does it change it? Well, first of all, it, it changes it so that you don't approach life and relationships as a consumer. Don't you see God has taken care of all of your needs? He's either already taken care of them or, or promised I will take care of them in the future. So you don't have to be on, out on this self-obsessive quest where you meet all of your felt needs. You're taken care of in Jesus. Your heavenly father is caring for you. And so now you can take that covenant love that you experience and you can give that away to others and make your life focused on them, giving of yourself, even as Jesus has given of himself for you. And you can be a person of your word. View promises. And when you, you uh, say that you're going to do something, let your yes be yes and your no be no. See this as training for your character in marriage. Because it's a promise. It's a covenant. And you want to have the character, the Holy Spirit working in you, strengthening you to have the character to keep that covenant in the good days and in the bad days. So begin approaching it that way. And the last thing is, even though you don't have this um, marriage relationship, this covenant of marriage within which to express the covenant love that you've been shown by Jesus, you have other covenant relationships, don't you? You have covenant relationships with our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. So share the covenant love that Jesus has shown you with them. This is what Paul tells Timothy to do. What does he say? He says, love the younger men as brothers. Share that covenant love with your brothers in the Lord. He says, treat the younger women as sisters in all purity. Show that covenant love that Jesus has shown you to them. 
Treat the older men as fathers. Take the covenant love you've been shown and love them with that covenant love. And treat the older women as mothers. Take the covenant love that Jesus has shown you and show it to them. Because of Christ's covenant faithful love to us, we are a different people. We are safe. We are secure. We have a relationship with the Father. And so now we're free to recklessly give of ourselves in the context of marriage and, and in all, all relationships. It's a beautiful thing. And this is what we're going to come back to over the next four weeks as we talk about um, roles in gospel-centered marriages. And we talk about conflict and intimacy and sex and dealing with a disappointing spouse. We're going to come back to this again and again and again because the love that God requires you to give He's already given to you in Christ. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, your love for us as you have shown it in the person and work of Jesus Christ leaves us speechless. It amazes us that you have loved us in this way in spite of the fact that we have sinned against you and turned from you and run from you and been unfaithful to you and to our spouses in the context of our, our covenant relationships. And yet you relentlessly pursue us. You are faithful to the covenant. And you love us. And we're thankful that we now get to share that love with our spouses. And with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We rejoice in that Lord. And we pray that your spirit would empower us to grow in this. And that we would see what an incredible privilege it is to now walk with you. To walk in relationship with you and to walk in relationship with our brothers and sisters in the context of community. We ask this all in the name of Jesus and for his glorious sake. Amen. All right, we're going to transition to question and answer time. How, you got any questions we, yet? We already have questions, and if you want to text right. any in, you can. Or um, the mics are I, up here as well. I wanted, to, I wanted to remind you guys of a couple of things. I'm Chad, by the way, if you haven't been here before. I'm one of the pastors here as well, and... Um, I remember, I was just sitting there thinking, I remember this, when this was a fantastic turnout for Sovereign Grace as a church. <laughs> it was a Sunday night, and I'm going, this is crazy. Anyway, um, hey, the, uh, um, the, the last meaning of marriage book is back there if anyone wants to buy it by Tim Keller. And if you're a single person, especially, I would encourage you to pick this up. And you say, well, the meaning of marriage, why do I want to pick this up as a single person? This guy addresses marriage from the perspective of singles probably better than anyone I've ever read. Yeah. Um, and so I would really encourage you to pick this up. Um, he has about 4,000 singles in his church, so he does quite a bit of ministry with them, and um, it's, it's quite a good book for that. It's, it's, it's also the book that we use in premarital counseling here, mm -hmm. so um, for both of those things, it's good. As well, there's a schedule back there. To, um, there's more new schedules back there if you didn't get any on your way in, so you guys are aware of those. Um, the questions came up, Jay. Here's what I want to do. Um, I'll have you take the first one, and I'll take the second and third, and you can take the fourth, and we'll just kind of go that way. Oh, alternate. Okay, okay. sure. Um, before I jump into the first question, though, let, I'll, I'll let you see it real quick. There it is. Um, let me just tell you guys that Jason does I, is not lying when he says that he was <laughs> difficult. You want to um, expound on when that? It huh? came to, I remember. I remember. I, I, I do have to make this because it was such an amen moment <laughs> for me personally. The I remember I pointed out a really cute girl to him, and I said, "She's a cute girl, and she's really nice and a solid Christian." He's like, "She smacks her gum too much." Oh. It's true. That's really? why I use that as an example. Really? That's it? Yeah, I can't date her. Anyway, so they give an example. That wasn't just like a throwaway example. He actually used that one. So, the, uh, Jake, why don't you go ahead and take so the first the, question. So the question is, why does it seem to be bad 
to be in a relationship of reward system. Based on why does it seem to be bad? Because it is bad. Um, <laughs> why is it bad? Because it doesn't reflect, again, if, if our relationships are supposed to be a picture of God's relationship with his people, it doesn't reflect that. Um, God does not, does not interact with us um, and, and say, you do these things and, and then I'll love you, then I'll give you these rewards. We, the, the context of the relationship that we have with God is, I love you and I'm committed to you unconditionally. And so that's, that's the relationship that we want to enter into with other people as well. Um, I mean, there are certain nuances to that, of course, yeah, um, but in relationships in general. And the reality is most of the people who come in to see us for counseling want a relationship based on a reward system. Yeah, they do. And that's, that's their they problem. They, they do. As soon as my spouse starts doing this, then I'll, make, then I'll be committed to the marriage. Yep. I'm going to tell you right now, if you come into a counseling session saying, when my spouse performs, then I'll be committed to the marriage, you, you're, you're, you're already going to fail. Mm-hmm. It's already, it's, the session's already doomed. Um, the, um, the, the second question that came up, um, well, that's actually the most recent one here, oh. is, is um, I'll take this one. Just as God is a jealous God for his people, so should a husband be for his wife, not sinful jealousy. Is there any room for this type of jealousy in a dating relationship? Um, clearly, God is a jealous God, and that's not sinful in that he he desires what rightfully belongs to him, what is his, and he doesn't want someone comp- competing for what rightfully is his. And um, I'm a jealous husband in the sense that that I, as as Teresa's husband, I deserve or I uh, require that her affection only be given to me and not to another man, and and vice versa, and that her affection rightfully is mine. It doesn't belong to someone else, and my affection is rightfully hers. It doesn't belong to someone else. The question is, does that carry over to dating? We don't mean blind-eyed jealousy that's envy and sinful and all that kind of stuff. We're saying having the right understanding of relationships and what belongs to whom. Um, I, I suppose to a degree it would be okay in a dating relationship in as much as there's sort of an implied understanding or an expressed understanding that, that we're not going to be out shopping around for other people while we're together. Um, in other words, I, I'm not sure if the right word is jealousy. The right word may be, um, hey, we've kind of agreed together that we're only pursuing one another. Now you going outside of that is a demonstration that your word isn't really something that's, that's very reliable. Um, but jealousy in the sense that you're dating, the person you're dating's affection rightly belongs to you, no, because it doesn't. You're not married to them. Um, the, uh, the next question that came in, JL, oh, oh, if two non-Christians marry, is it still considered a marriage covenant without Christ as part of it? Yes, yes. Uh, uh, marriage is, is a, a creation institution. It's given to believers and to unbelievers. I hope that, yeah. that's simple Yeah, it's enough. in the creation ordinance. It's not something that's only given to the church. Um, is it okay for a man to, be, to leave his wife if she is verbally abusive to him, or should he just suck it up? <laughs> well, those aren't the only two options, but <laughs> if you feel like these are the only two options, give Jay a call. Yes, please the, do. Um, what, <laughs> those are not the only options. <laughs> why, why, why don't you take that one, too? Um, <laughs> You'll be way more compassionate than me. Go <laughs> just go ahead and take that one. Oh, okay. If she's verbally abused, is it okay for him? No. That, that there are no biblical grounds for you to, to leave your wife because she's... Um, verbally abusive 
to you. Now, I, I don't, I would, if the both parties were willing, I would love to meet with both of them and, and talk about this. Oftentimes, what I've, in my limited experience with marriage counseling, what I've learned is that uh, typically an angry spouse that's pretty abusive, now this isn't a one size fits all, this is a generality, uh, a spouse that's abusive and constantly angry is usually a spouse that doesn't really feel heard. Um, generally. Now, I'm not throwing it back on the husband and saying this is your fault. Um, to, to some degree, however small, I'm sure some of it is. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, no, you're, it's not okay to, to leave your wife because she's verbally abusive to you. I'm sorry that you're going through that. It must be extremely difficult. And uh, if that's just a hypothetical, I hope that's helpful. If it's not, come talk to me. Uh, email me, Jason at sgcb.org. If you're both willing, even if you're not, I'd love to meet with you, whoever, whoever you are out there, and talk about that and hopefully encourage you in how to love your spouse, to love your enemy. That's what, that's what we're, we're called to do. So resting in the love that God has for you gives you the ability to, to love your enemies, even if that enemy, unfortunately, is your spouse. Um, our elder asked the next three questions, and one of our elders, so I'm assuming... He knows the answer or else we'll have to talk about his being an elder, but I think he's just prodding us on. <laughs> um, is there such a thing as the one for me? And if so, what if I miss it? How will I know? <laughs> the, um, um, I, I know this question, and Jason and all of us get all, a lot. Um, when I was a, 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 in the youth group at River Lakes when I, or Fruitvale when I was a kid, I... I I still remember asking my then youth pastor, Dave Champness, I asked him, I said, how, how do you know Karen's the one for you, his wife? How do you know that she's the one for you? And I remember he said to me, he goes, because I married her. <laughs> I was like, that is an enormously unhelpful answer, Dave. <laughs> very <laughs> and wise. Later, later, yeah, wise, but it wasn't very helpful. <laughs> um, is there the one for you? I, I just think it's sort of a waste of your time to run around looking for the one. Why, why don't you focus on on being a godly person who will make a, a good spouse for someone else and, and then find another person committed to Jesus that you want to marry and marry them. And when you say, I do, you're the one, right? That's it. Um, Jason said marriage only makes sense within the context of a covenant relationship with Christ. Does that mean unbelievers have no hope of a successful marriage? What if my spouse is an unbeliever? Is there any hope for my marriage? You want me to address that yeah. since it's something that I said? Yep, go ahead. Great. Um, can unbelievers have uh, a successful marriage? Yes. From a human standpoint, from an ultimate standpoint of, uh, of drawing near to God and using this as a means to, to grow in sanctification and grow closer to him, no. Uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a yes and no answer in that regard, because God, God is amazing in his common grace. I've seen many unbelievers have very, from a human standpoint, successful marriages. Um, because the reality is, um, every, again, the ultimate reality is God's marriage with his people. All marriages are a picture of that. Um, believing uh, marriages and unbelieving marriages are a picture. So they're either a good picture or a bad picture. Um, depending on how much they, how close they get to God's relationship with His people and embracing grace and love, and understanding, um, what was the other one? What yeah. if my spouse is an unbeliever? Is there any hope for my marriage? Yeah, there's enormous hope. There, uh, Paul seems to give enormous hope in First Corinthians seven 
I'm not going to venture a guess on what it means that the unbelieving spouse is made holy. Um, but I think what that means is that, I said I wasn't going to do it, but I'm going to, is that yeah, yeah. They're, they're around someone that is hopefully um, sharing the gospel with them and embodying the love of Christ that they've been shown themselves. So yes, here's the, the amazing hope for your marriage if you're, if you're married to an unbeliever is God's called you to that. Um, now, if you're, uh, if you're an unbeliever dating an, a, a believer, uh, for the believer, you're not called to marry the unbeliever. That's off base. But once you're married, that's God's calling for you. And so who knows what God is going to do? Maybe he's going to be pleased to save your spouse. Um, so, but you have the opportunity to love them either way. So there's incredible hope P- here. Peter assumes there's hope as well. First Peter 3, speaking to wives who have unbelieving husbands, he, uh, he tells the wives that, you know, you can win your husband over, but you're not going to win them over by, by nagging them into the kingdom, right? You're going you're gonna to win them over by loving them well, loving the Lord, being a holy person. They're going to see that. And I've seen it happen in my own uh, mom's life. Yeah. My, mom was, my mom became a believer um, I, I don't, probably when I was in my early to mid-20s, and then, and she was married to my stepfather, and my stepfather was not a believer until three years ago, um, and she continued to love him, and care for him, and be kind to him, and he was coming around, and he became a believer. Her witness was a big part of that. I saw it as well with um, Sue Clifford, who's in our church. Sue prayed for her husband for years, for Rex, and Rex finally became a believer and got baptized not too long after we started the church, actually, yeah. yep. um, somewhere in the first year. And so um, there is hope. Yeah. Um, as a single person, what should I look for in a potential spouse? And how do I do this without being selfish? If marriage is a covenant we enter by choice, should we even look for that special person or just find someone who meets the qualifications <laughs> and go for it? Well, I'm not qualified to answer that question um, because of my personal approach yeah yeah worked out okay jason so far so i thought i picked out your wife oh (laughs) there's a story behind that (laughs) the um he had to win her over but i did point her out (laughs) you did first time i met her i said there jason's wife just walked into church (laughs) i told my wife that and we yeah we're right so you were praise the the um what do you look for in a potential spouse someone who loves jesus and is committed to him first and foremost Mm. And you're going to see their commitment to Christ in the way that they love others and the way they love their church. I'm just going to tell you. Mm-hmm. That's how you see it. How do you see their love? Well, people can say they love Jesus all they want. How do you see it manifested? You, in the way they love other people. That's how you see it. In the way they love their church. And so that's what you look for. How do they love the body of Christ? How do they love those outside the body of Christ? How do they speak about people when I'm around them? How forgiving are they towards others? How much do they hold grudges and how, how resentful are they and how bitter are they? Those are things that you look at. Those are way more important. Beauty is fleeting, right? Um, I mean, obviously, you're going to probably look for somebody you're attracted to, and that's fine, but the, the fact is, is that that stuff is all secondary. Um, the other um, thing, no, don't look for that special person, quote unquote. Just, just go find a good, godly person and marry them if you're single. Okay, if that's what you want, if that's what you're called to do, go find somebody and get married. Stop wasting so much time in consternation. The, um, the, all right. Amen. If you think you're called to be single, then do that, please, by all means. But um, the next question that came up was, um, can Jason 
repeat the definition of marriage so I oh, can yeah. write it yeah. down. Certainly. Uh, <laughs> I should probably have that right off the top of my head, shouldn't I? Why don't you just put it on our, our Facebook page there for you the go. church? I'll if anybody wants to write it down, it'll be on the Sovereign I'm Grace put Church it on there Facebook for you. page. Um, how does a Christian dating couple deal with jealous friends? Why would a friend want to abandon a lifelong friendship when her friend gets a boyfriend who seeks a God-centered relationship? How can that friend share in that new blessing when she doesn't want anything to do with it? Wow, that's some serious drama. That um, is. The, <laughs> um, that is, yeah. How does a Christian couple, dating couple deal with jealous friends? Friends are jealous, I'm assuming, over the dating relationship. I don't know. I was really jealous when you were dating Kristen. <laughs> you, how did you deal with me? No. Oh, how did I deal <laughs> no, with you? I don't know. What, how, do you, how, do you, well, okay. how do you answer that? Yeah. I, <laughs> think from, I think from Chad's standpoint, <laughs> no, part, of, part of what he realized Part of what he realized is that, that it's necessarily, you're taking one step potentially closer to marriage. So naturally, when, when you're moving closer to marriage, your other relationships do change. I'm not going to try to qualify and point out every distinction of what that looks like, but it is going to change. So on the part of the friend, you, you need to realize that and be okay with that and, and encourage that and say, listen, even take the lead and tell your friend who's in this relationship, I know things are going to be are going to change, and I want you to know I'm okay with that. I still want to be your friend, but I know that this is going to be, it's going to be different, and I'm okay with that. I'm excited for you. Um, Jason so took me to a nice dinner and explained that to me. <laughs> it was good. I did. It was super helpful. So that's, that's no. a helpful way to do that, by the um, way. So the other. <laughs> did that answer the question? Or? I think you did, yeah. Okay. I answered why would a friend why would a friend want to abandon a lifelong friendship when her friend gets a boyfriend who seeks a god-centered relationship um, I, I don't know <laughs> because that friend has serious issues I is would, what I guess I would push you to make sure you're not assuming that they're abandoning your friendship and and, and are, did they actually say that did they tell you I'm, I'm abandoning this this friendship or are they just, does it seem that way with their actions? Sit down and talk about it. Communicate about it. Take them out to a nice dinner and, uh, and talk it over. Yeah. Because I'd be careful not to assume that. You know, I've got to be honest with you guys. There's a lot of um, drama that happens in our um, relationships. And to some extent, we, we just need to kind of back off and slow down and rest and hmm. pray and and sometimes your friends are going to do crazy, dramatic stuff, and you just don't respond to it. You just go forward and continue to do what you know is right. You cannot always please everybody. You shouldn't even be trying to. You should be trying to please God and love people well. And if people are getting dramatic about it, then it's sort of their issue. Pray for them. Love them. Speak to them about it if you have the opportunity to do so. Um, other than that, there's not a lot you can do. Would you consider having a singles event with your church where they can meet each other? So sort of like a, <laughs> sort of like a singles dating service. Yes. Yeah, yes. I'm all for helping you all hook up. There's that, the matchmaker right there. That's a horrible term, isn't it? <laughs> like, I'm not very culturally aware, so helping you date one another in such a way that God is honored and you get married if that's what you're looking to do. I need to become more culturally aware so I don't use terms like that. <laughs> All right. <laughs>
Yeah, so you guys got, you got it there? All right. Um, Jay, why don't you pray and we'll, we'll Yeah, conclude. let me pray and everyone can get out of here. Father, we are so thankful for your grace towards us. And boy, our relationships are, are so messy. And the reason that that is the case is because of our, our sinful, self-seeking hearts and uh, just the complexity of dealing with, with a fallen world. And, and Lord, we just pray that, that you would amaze us with your grace and we would rest in that, we would rest in your love, and we would extend that grace to each other um, so that when the onlooking world sees us, um, they say, wow, those people must be Christians because look at how they love each other. So we want to we wanna glorify your son in our relationships. And so we pray that by the grace of your spirit, you would empower us to that end. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.